And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Hope that will not disappoint. And I put the word not in uppercase. Hope that will not disappoint. And for that I ask that we turn this morning to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 5 through 11. And uh, I will not give the context right now because the context will be evident as I open up the passage. So we're going to read from verse 5 to verse 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 to 11. Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, had been discussing the glorious and blessed effects of God's justifying sinners by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In consequence of this gracious act, of God, God's saving act toward us as sinners, we, Paul says, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the tense, as we pointed out, is present continuous tense. We are having peace with God. We are not hoping for peace with God, but right in the here and now, having placed faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are enjoying peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. According to verse 2a, we have a passage that is access to God in which we stand and continue to stand. So we have peace with God, we have a passage to God, and then third, as a result of God's justifying grace toward us as sinners, ours is a joyous hope with respect to the glory of God. We see that in the B part of verse 2. And then Paul adds in verse 3, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. It is as though Paul was saying to his readers, look, I've told you, all of these glorious benefits of God's saving, justifying grace, having come to Christ, we have peace with God, we have access to God, we have a joyous hope in an anticipating the glory of God. But Paul then says, not only that, Here's the deal. Part of the whole package is this. We not only glory in those privileges, in those blessings, but we also glory, we also rejoice in our suffering. And someone will say to Paul, Paul, that is utterly counterintuitive. That is contrary to natural human experience. Who in the world does that kind of thing? Paul, of course, will add, yes, it's counterintuitive to natural human experience, but here's the reason why it is that we as Christians can rejoice in our suffering. And Paul says we can rejoice in our sufferings because of what we know, because of what we know. He says, because we know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and that hope does not disappoint us. That hope does not put us to shame. That is to say, hope of final deliverance from the pain and distress of this present life, hope as regards that eternal weight of glory that awaits us, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, is what we're looking for, and we are not going to be disappointed. So that far from diminishing the Christian's hope of future glory, suffering, as intended by God, enhances the Christian's hope. Keep in mind, as we said last week, that biblical hope, the hope of which Scripture speaks, is not wishful thinking. It is not 
some kind of vague optimism. It is not even what we might call cautious optimism. I hope so. Mm, not too sure, but I hope so. It's none of that rather biblical hope is confident, assured expectation. As portrayed in scripture, Christian hope, biblical hope, is a firm, assured expectation and conviction that whatever God has promised will most definitely come to pass. That is why Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 can characterize such hope as hope that is sure and steadfast. In other words, hope that's marked by courage, hope that's marked by confidence and conviction, such that we can say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And the presence of such vibrant hope in the hearts of the believers in Christ offers compelling motivation for the believer not to be ashamed. Unashamed of what? Unashamed of his or her faith in Christ. Unashamed of the seeming contradiction between being a child of God on the one hand and experiencing the harsh realities of suffering in this present life. Now in explaining why it is that our hope does not put us to shame, Paul introduces at this point two subjects of the Christian faith which we had not mentioned previously, namely the love of God and the Holy Spirit. Back in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, chapter 2 verse 5, chapter 3 verse 8, chapter 3 verse 26, as well as chapter 4 verse 15, Paul had spoken about the wrath of God. He had spoken about the justice of God, but not the love of God. Before looking at how Paul relates the Holy Spirit and the love of God to this matter of the believer's hope in suffering, let us say something about the Holy Spirit. And let me say to begin with that for Paul, the Holy Spirit is huge. For Paul, the Holy Spirit is a big deal in his letter to the Romans. In fact, more than any other New Testament writer, Paul speaks of the indispensability of one's salvation and one's sanctification as far as the Spirit of God is concerned. Paul is teaching throughout the epistle of Romans that the Holy Spirit is most crucial, is very much vital to this matter of the Christian's salvation and sanctification. For example, throughout the epistle, he cites the various relationships which the Holy Spirit sustains toward the believer in Christ. As well, he tells us the various names by which the Holy Spirit is known, the various titles of the Holy Spirit. For example, as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is referred to in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 as the Spirit of Holiness. We can see why it's called the Holy Spirit, because he's a Spirit of Holiness. He is characterized in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 as the Spirit of Life. The Spirit of Life. According to Romans chapter 8 verse 9, he is at once the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Fifteen times in Romans, he is simply referred to as the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8 verse 15, he is termed the Spirit of adoption. This means that through him, you and I are adopted into the family of God. We were adopted into the family of God the moment we placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. According to Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, the Holy Spirit assures us of our sonship, the fact that we are indeed the children of God, such that we are led to cry, Abba, Father. Abba, of course, being a term of endearment, a term of deep affection, it's the equivalent of our saying, Daddy or Papa. He says, God has sent forth, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, on account of which we cry, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. And we learn here in verse 5 of Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So that's the first thing we learn from our text concerning the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. The question is, when was he given to us? Well, certainly not when we prayed harder, 
Not when we prayed harder, not when we sinned less, not when we became spiritually mature, but the Holy Spirit was given us the very moment we embraced faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how scripture puts it, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, in him that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And praise God, the word of God teaches that having come to indwell us, the Holy Spirit will never leave the believer. Indeed, this is what assures us of the eternal security of our salvation, the fact that we as believers in Christ will never be lost. Why? The guarantee is the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to us, and that is one and the same as saying that God gave himself to us. Now watch this. God gave himself to us in at least two ways. What are, what are those two ways? First of all, he gave himself to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to the language of the apostle John. He, the son of God, the Lord Jesus, was dwelling in the bosom of the father. When God gave of his son, God, as it were, plucked out of his very heart, his very bosom, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then God gave of himself through the blessed Holy Spirit. Because the word of God tells us, the Lord Jesus, when he was on, here on earth, he says this, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come again to you. What was he referring to? The coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he will abide with you forever because he shall be in you, with you forever. And he will teach you all things. His presence will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit, we gather from Romans chapter 7, verses 5 through 25, provides power for holy, godly living. Listen, beloved, brethren, we never live the Christian life in our own strength. Our living the Christian life is not a matter of fighting for dear life. No, our living the Christian life comes from the dynamic, from the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is why, according to Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he's the one who effects in us righteousness, peace, and joy. He is the one who, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 2, liberates the believer from the power of sin. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 14, the Holy Spirit leads believers by virtue of the fact that they are the sons of God. Now, that is a term that's being banded about today. People talk about the leading of the Holy Spirit. The question is, what is the leading of the Holy Spirit? Well, the leading of the Holy Spirit is not some kind of subjective impression you and I receive. People say, oh, I'm led of the Spirit to do this and that. In the context of, of Romans, to be led of the Spirit of God is to be directed by the Spirit of God in the ways of righteousness, in the ways of pleasing God. And that is why the Bible will say then that as many as are the sons of God, they are led by the Spirit. And that is why elsewhere Paul will write to the Galatian Christians, he says, walk in the Spirit. In other words, keep in step with the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11 teaches that he resides in the believer. And this, among other things, says that as Christians, you and I are what? We are possessed by God. God owns us. God, in the purse of the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in your heart and my heart the moment we came to Christ as Savior, and that signals the fact that he owns us, he seals us as his very own. That is why, among other things, the Word of God will say to the believer in Christ, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and that you are not your own? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's belong to God. Consequently, and this goes for those who are not saved, anyone under the sound of my voice this morning who is not saved, here is the consequent point of the Apostle Paul as it relates to the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul will assert in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, 
he does not belong to him. He does not belong to him. You're not a child of God. You're not a child of his. And the question this morning is, do you have resident in your heart the Holy Spirit? Somebody says, how can I know that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me? Let me tell you how it is we don't go about establishing that he's in our heart. We don't, we don't look to some kind of feeling. People say, I feel the Holy Ghost. Well, let me tell you, you can have wonderful feelings, elated feelings, high spiritual feelings, and end up in hell. Because here's the truth, unless we come to faith, definitely come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, looking to Jesus Christ alone as the source of our salvation, the effective cause of our salvation, we are outside of Christ, we are devoid of the Spirit of God, and we will not see life eternal. It is only those who are saved, who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, and hence belong to God as the children of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, we learn that the Holy Spirit helps and intercedes for us in prayer. And that's very encouraging because if you're like me, you'll testify, you'll readily testify that there are times when it is difficult to articulate our prayers. Sometimes we're at a loss for words. Sometimes our hearts and minds are not disposed to praying. How many can honestly say that? Do you always feel to pray? Are you always disposed to pray? Are you always in the mood to pray? Well, all power to you. I know at times my own heart is sluggish. My thoughts are lazy. But here's the blessed truth of the word of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. For we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Here's the wonderful news. And he who knows the mind of the Spirit, he knows exactly what we want because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That is why, beloved, the word of God tells us, Jude tells us in Jude, his epistle of Jude, verse 18, I think it is, he says, praying, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, praying at all times with all prayer in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means to pray under the inspiration, under the directive of the Spirit of God. Besides interceding for us, he, as I said, he enables us to pray effectively. For example, he impresses on our minds the things for which we should pray. He works through motives, he works through our desires such that we are led to pray in ways that honor and glorify God. He guides our thoughts, he guides our utterances when we would have otherwise been empty and powerless in prayer. Who knows what we're talking about? Now, chapter 15 and verse 16 of Romans teaches that the Holy Spirit sanctifies, watch this, the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 15 and verse 16, sanctifies and makes acceptable our service in the sight of God. That's what Romans chapter 15 16 teaches. Here's the truth. Our best intentions... Our sincerest efforts at pleasing God will not please him unless two things happen. Number one, they are offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in being offered through the Lord Jesus Christ, they are empowered and energized by the Holy Spirit. Listen, beloved, we cannot preach and teach the word of God. We cannot perform service for God apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we might be gifted. There are people who are great speakers, naturally gifted speakers. Here's the truth. There's a great difference between being a great orator and a preacher of the word of God. Because here's the truth. What is it that will enable the preacher to preach with conviction, to preach with earnestness? It is the presence of the Holy Spirit who empowers and guides and inspires the preacher to preach God's word. And to preach it with conviction, to preach it fearlessly. 
And then Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, it is the Holy Spirit, the Word of God teaches in Romans 15, 18 and 19, who empowers believers for ministry according to the Word of God. So he he sanctifies and renders our service acceptable to God, Romans 15, 16, but then he empowers believers for ministry according to Romans 15, 18 and 19. So we see then the vital importance, the crucial importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And here in our text, Paul, in explaining why it is that the Christian is not going to be disappointed as far as his hope in God is concerned, the reason why the Christian will not be put to shame with respect to his or her hope of future glory, he says, In verse 5, here's what he says. Hope does not disappoint. Here's why Paul says, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here we learn, watch this, we learn here that Christian hope, that confident, joyous hope that's referred to in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, is not, is not humanly induced, but is supernaturally generated by the Spirit of God. If you and I try to work up hope in our hearts, what will happen? We end up with wishful, fanciful thinking. True biblical hope is not humanly induced. It is not humanly derived. True biblical Christian hope is imparted, is generated by the Spirit of God at work in our hearts. That's what the Word of God teaches. And Paul says here that our rejoicing in hope in the coming glory of God does not disappoint us because hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice here in these verses, not only does he generate hope in the hearts of Christians, but according to Romans chapter 15, verse 13, he enhances this hope in abundant measure. Paul writes to the Christians at Rome, there in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, he says this, May the God of hope, so you see right away, it is God who what, generates hope. It is God who inspires hope, God the Holy Spirit. So here's what he says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Watch this. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspires, who generates hope in our hearts. And so getting back to our text, we find Paul then addressing this question, how can we, here's the question Paul is addressing in our text this morning, the question is, how can you and I as Christians be sure, how can we really tell that the hope we're entertaining regarding the glories that are to come, in particular the glories of Our final salvation, the glories of seeing God in all his glory, manifested in all his glory, and participating in that glory. How can we know for sure that at the end of the day, our hope will not disappoint? How can we know that our hope is not some idle, fanciful pipe dream? You know, that's a very important question. Because the skeptics look at us with our faith and they say, well, I don't believe in this religion of pie in the sky in the by and by after I die. That's what they say. And they will say, "How? what if, what if you are deceived? And we need to ask ourselves that question, what if you and I are or have been duped into hoping for that which is not real? That which has no basis in reality? What if, after all, we are misguided into hoping for what will only turn out to be a big disappointment? And beloved, Paul presents for us this morning at least three suggestions as to why such is not the case. In the first place, Paul argues that as believers in Christ, we can be sure of the hope of God's glory and of our final salvation that It will not disappoint us because, watch this, because of the inner conviction of God's love 
for us. That's a radical statement. Paul, how can you and I know, how can we as Christians know that our hope is not going to be dashed, that our hope as a basis in reality, that we're not being duped into some fanciful idle pipe dream? And Paul puts on the line, first of all, he establishes this. We know for sure because of the inner conviction of God's love for us. Here's what Paul says. Listen, watch verse 5. He says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been what? Poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now I know what you're thinking. Here's the truth. In an epistle of such doctrinal depth, I would say this, that it's really remarkable that Paul should give attention to the subjective, emotional aspect of the Christian faith. And it's remarkable because particularly in Reformed circles, there's sometimes the tendency, sometimes the tendency to downplay, if not discourage, any hint of the subjective experiential claim of the Christian. Let me say up front here. And Pastor Horgers, I'm sure, will attest to this, that if we had a prospective member coming to us and say, one of the questions, the first question we ask, share with us your salvation experience. And if they say, how do you know, if we ask, how do you know you're saved? And I say, you know, because in my heart, I just know. We would be inclined to say, what else? <laughs> and there's a kind of suspicion. And let me just say this, rightly so, because here's the truth. Here's the truth. Watch this. The Mormons have the burning of the heart, but they are without Christ. And if they die without Christ, they're going to hell. But they have the burning of the heart. You say, how do you know you're saved? Because I feel it in my heart, the burning in my heart. But notice here, Paul does not blush. Paul does not blush in factoring into his letter to the Romans, the emotional, experiential side of the Christian life. And as I say to you, keep listening, keep holding on, because we're going to go somewhere with this. As one commentator well observes, he says this quote, The book of Romans doesn't lack emotion or passionate experiences with God. Paul wants us to think the right thoughts about God, but he also wants us to have the right experience with God. The love of God poured out into our hearts. And so notice throughout his epistle, the various allusions to the inner subjective experiential side of Christian Living. Here in Romans chapter 5, verses 2, 3, and 11, he makes reference, for example, to our rejoicing as Christians. Three times. He says, we, we rejoice, we rejoice, we rejoice. That certainly has to do with what? The inner state of the heart. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, he makes mention of the inner witness. Watch this. He makes reference to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, attesting to the fact that we are God's children. He says there, here's what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. He says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What is that? There's subjectivity there. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, he speaks of believers groaning inwardly as they wait eagerly for their adoption as sons, that is the redemption of their bodies. He says, while we wait in this fallen, sinful, broken world, we are groaning in our spirits. In Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, he speaks of the sorrowful burden he bears for his countrymen who have not embraced faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, my heart has continual heaviness and sorrow. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, listen to Paul. Paul, as it were, erupts in doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Let me say this. It is clear from the epistle of Paul to the Romans. It is clear as we look elsewhere in the word of God, particularly in the Psalms, that Christian godly living is not dry, is not dull, and is not devoid of inner experiences. So really, we can't knock the subjective element. We can't knock the experiential element. In fact, many of our Reformed brothers, they are timid in using the word experiential. They say rather, you'll more hear them speak of experimental. 
Now, here's the truth, brethren. It's not the will of God that we should be all heady, dry, and academic with respect to our faith. Because the doctrines of God's saving grace should not simply be in our heads for discussion. They should be also in our hearts, moving us to rejoice and revel in the saving grace of God. And let me say this. You say, what is the legitimacy of this idea of the Holy Spirit flooding our hearts with the love of God? Let me say this, that there is a basis for it. It is not something ethereal. It is not some kind of spiritual zap we get. It is not some kind of mystical experience that we enter into into the ether. Paul gives us a clue as to how we come to sense the inner workings of the Spirit of God, giving us this massive sense of God's love for us. You can write the scripture down, Ephesians 1.18. In Ephesians 1, Paul is praying for the Ephesian Christians, and here's what he says. I'm praying that the heart of your understanding would be enlightened so that you may know the hope of his calling, that you may know the riches of the inheritance of his glorious grace. Here's the truth. Here's what I want to get at now. Biblical Christian emotion, biblical passionate Christian experience is not something that is worked up. It is not some kind of state in which we put ourselves. It derives from the truth of God's word, taking a hold of our hearts, of our understanding, such that we are moved to rejoice in God, to praise God, to glorify God. It is not emotionalism. And there is such a thing, according to the Apostle Paul, as this sense of the love of God being poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The truth of God's word, my friend, should set our hearts ablaze with praise and glory to God. Indeed, theology should lead to what? Doxology, to praising God. And here in our text, Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, unapologetically affirms the role of the Holy Spirit in imparting to believers an experiential sense of the love of God. Uh, let me just say this as well. This is not something I imagine we experience 24 sevens. And I guarantee you this. Go to a person who is in the throes of distress, of pain, and ask them, do you feel God's love? And what they'll tell you, probably invariably they'll say, honestly, I wonder. <laughs> because you see, God has a way of doing that from time to time. But this is not something we ride on daily. God imparts this to us. He does it as a matter of grace. He is sovereign in terms of when he dispenses that experience. He says... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts, means suggests this, that he does not merely afford us a hint or inkling of God's love, but that in abundant measure he floods our hearts with a profound sense of God's love for us. As I said, that's not something that happens 24-7. God has a way of ministering this in times of deep suffering. This deep-seated conviction, this deep-seated persuasion as to how much God loves us. So the idea here, Paul is establishing first of all, the idea here is that if God, or better yet, since God loves us so much and has made that love for us known through the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, giving us this sense of how much God loves us, then this signals the fact that he would never disappoint us so as to shame us with respect our hope in his promises. He loves us too much to disappoint us. But look at the second point. Paul argues, secondly, that as believers in Christ, we can be sure of our hope, of God's glory, of our final salvation, that such hope will not disappoint us, that such hope will not put us to shame. And this is very important. Here it comes. Not only because of the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, but look at verses 6 through 8, because this is critical because of the objective reality of God's love for us. 
You see then what we are saying here, that Christian hope and the experiential aspect of Christian life in which we talk about the inner working of the Holy Spirit is not something that is devoid of Scripture. It is not something that's devoid of history. It is not something that is ethereal. It is concretely based on God's Word, on what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody says, how do you know God loves you? It's not simply that I feel it. Do you feel it all the while? Honestly, no. At the end of the day, how do you know God loves you? Because the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. And that's where our assurance comes from ultimately. So we don't start really. The Apostle Paul starts here, but here's the point. You and I really do not start there and bank everything there. Why? Because number two, namely the objective reality of God's love for us, manifested concretely in the cross of the Lord Jesus, the fact that he died for our sins, is the absolute and ultimate guarantee that God loves us. As an expression of God's love for us, Christ died for us, Scripture asserts. Let's talk about this for a moment. First of all, we see in our text the extent of his love for us. The extent of his love for us. Notice in the A part of verse 6, as to the extent of God's love for us, he loved us despite our helplessness. Do you see that? Look at verse 6a. He says this. While we were still weak. What does that mean? It means this, that while we were woefully debilitated by the ravages of sins, he loved us even while we were impotent, while we were incapable as far as meeting the standard of God's righteousness. In our helplessness and in our weakness, Christ died for us. Why? Because we were inadequate, we were impotent, we were insufficient as far as meeting the standard of God's righteousness is concerned. Let me say this to those who would want to be goody-goody, work their way to heaven. You're on your own. If ever you decide to bypass the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, work your way into heaven. Let me say this, you never stop work. You never stop working. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now to him who does not work but believes, the reward is reckoned not according to works but according to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul said back in chapter 4 of Romans. You see, under the power of sin, we were weak as far as the ability our ability to keep the law of God was concerned, and that is why in our weakness, the word of God suggests we were bankrupt, destitute of the ability to please God. That is why Romans chapter 8 verse 9 will say this, so then those who are in the flesh, that is unconverted, in their natural state, they cannot please God. So as to the extent of his love for us, first of all, God loved us despite our helplessness. It was when we were weak, helpless, impotent, Christ died for us, beloved. That's the gospel. That is what we trust in. That is what we rest in for our soul's salvation. The fact that in our weakness and helplessness, Christ came to the place where we were in our helplessness, in our lostness, and he died for us in order to save us. That is the gospel in a nutshell. But notice, secondly, as to the extent of his love for us, not only did God love us despite our helplessness, but he loved us, watch this, despite our hostility, our enmity toward him. Look at verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, verse 6 tells us, which means this, while we had no desire for God, while we had no intention of honoring and pleasing God or to be like God in our conduct, God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ died for us. Think of that. 
It was not when we were lovable. It was not when we were trying to please God. In fact, while we were trying to please God, God reckoned us as enemies. Why? Because we were bringing to him the fruits of our own works, which come from a filthy, fallen nature. All our good works served only to provoke him. Why? Because they flew, as it were, in the face of the finished work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And sending his only beloved son to die for sinners who were inimical to him, living in rebellion against him, because that's the basic meaning of ungodly, what it means to be ungodly. It is to be hateful toward God. It is to be even indifferent toward God. It is to be indisposed to honoring God. All of that, the fact that Christ died when we were in a state of hostility, when we were in a state of helplessness, says a great deal regarding the extent of God's love for us. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, 16, here's what the Apostle John says. He says, by this we know love. We were talking a while ago about the subjective side of the Spirit's work in our hearts concerning the love of God. How do we know that? How do we know it's for real? Because it's grounded in the historical concrete reality of the cross, the fact that Christ died. Here's what he says, 1 John 4, 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 1 John 4 verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That word means satisfaction for our sins. Indeed, verse 10 tells us, while we were enemies, that we were reconciled to God. Who does that? God Almighty in Jesus Christ. It was while we were attempting to stab at him, it was while we were kicking at him, it was while we were spitting at him, it was while we were despicable that God in the person of Jesus Christ, as he hung on that cross, reconciled us to himself while we were helpless, while we were hostile, while we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Hallelujah. The church says glory. Why? Because that's the gospel. All this spells the infinite, immeasurable magnitude of God's love for us. In our text, not only do we see the extent of God's love for us, The fact that he loved us despite our helplessness. The fact that he loved us despite our hostility. But notice, we see in our text the uniqueness of his love. The uniqueness of his love. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, commentators are... At odds, really, in disagreement as to what this means between the righteous man on the one hand and the good man on the other hand. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. It's not quite clear the point Paul is making between the distinction between the righteous and the good man. But let me say this. However we interpret this, one thing is clear from this verse. Verse 7 is this. None of us is righteous. And I'm going to say the other one. None of us is good. You know, that's radical. What do the world's religions say? What does contemporary spirituality, worldly cultural spirituality say? The basic goodness of human nature. Remember that song? I believe children are future. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. No, 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 no. There's rottenness. There's corruption. No. Don't get me wrong, our little ones, they're sweet to us. When we hold our children, they're cute and cuddly, but from God's perspective, the word of God teaches that because they came into this world contaminated by the sin of Adam, at heart they are rotten to the core, and we'll prove it. Just let your hands off that child and watch that child as that child grows. That child, if not curbed, will bring ruin and destruction Not only on himself, but perhaps even on the parents. None of us is good. None of us is righteous. And yet, here's the gospel. Wonder of wonders, it was while we were still sinners, helpless, hostile toward God, hating God, ungodly, unrighteous, that Christ, his son, died for us. Such love is unconditional love. Such love is a love beyond all comparison. 
Because he loved us precisely when he saw nothing in us that attracted him to loving us. Indeed, he loved us even when there was nothing lovable in us. Do you know anybody who loves like that in an absolute sense? Not at all, not on earth. It's a foreign kind of love. It's a unique kind of love. It's an alien love. It is a love which is found only in Christ. But then notice thirdly, the timing of his love for us, the timing of his love for us. God, Paul suggests here, expressed his love for us at a definite, concrete point in human history, because notice what he says in verse 6. He says this, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, that is, at just the right point in salvation history. He laid down his life for sinners. You see, in his great love for sinners, helpless and dying as they were, Christ was so intent on saving lost, guilty, wretched sinners, that he would not delay one moment. He would not delay one moment beyond that divinely appointed time when he was to offer up himself as a sacrifice for sins. So here's Paul in Galatians 4.4 explaining the right time. He says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman made under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. That right time is spoken of in Galatians 4.4 and 5. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why? Because centuries of law-keeping had made it clear that no one could ever be saved by keeping the law. Why? Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All that the law of God does, my friends, it shows, it exposes our weaknesses, our sins, our defilements. All that the law of God does is to show us how wretched a sinner we are. And we're talking about the law going for hundreds of years. But at the right time, Christ came over 2,000 years ago. He laid down his life as the perfect ultimate sacrifice, himself being the perfect high priest. And he made atonement for sins once for all. Such love was the love of God in Christ for us. Regarding this love of God and the account of which Christ died for us, John Brown of Womfrey says this. He says, quote, this love of God is an eternal act of his will. It is a special love, a most intense love, and unparalleled. Yes, the most transcendent love that ever was shown to the creature, from which flows the greatest gift, namely Christ Jesus, that ever was bestowed on any creature. End quote. So Paul argues that as believers in Christ, we can be sure then that our hope will not be disappointed. Our hope of God's glory and of our final salvation will not be put to shame because, number one, the inner conviction of God's love for us. He says we know it because God has impressed that deeply and profoundly upon our hearts, not as something abstract, ethereal, and mystical in the negative sense of the word, but that is based on the historic, concrete reality of his manifested love in Christ Jesus on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Secondly, because of the objective reality of God. But finally this morning, and here's the final point this morning. We can be sure that our hope of God's glory, future glory, will not disappoint us. It will not put us to shame. Watch this. Because of the logical implication of God's love for us. Because of the logical implication of God's love for us. First of all, verses 9 and 10. Here's Paul's logic under divine inspiration. He says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies of his, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. To make compelling the sure and certain fulfillment of the Christian's hope as regards the glory of the believer's final salvation, Paul, notice here, he argues from the lesser to the greater. If God did this, and this is below here, consider what he's going to do here. It's, what, it's essentially what he's saying. And with rich salvation vocabulary, Paul rehearses the loving, gracious acts of God in Christ toward those he has saved. He mentions three such acts of God, two of which look to the past. He tells us, number one, God justifies us. What does that mean? 
When by the Spirit of God we came to Christ, we placed our faith and trust in Christ, he says, acquitted, not guilty, go free, forgiven. And then he tells us that he reconciled us to himself. That's why we have peace with God, not peace in the subjective sense. Peace with God means, irrespective of how we feel, God has established peaceful relations between himself on the basis on the merits of Christ's atoning work. First, Paul reasons that since we have now, that is in the present time, been justified, that is acquitted of our sins and declared righteous by Christ's blood, how much more will God wrap up this matter of our salvation, saving us from his wrath, from that coming final judgment? If you ask the question, Paul, what do you mean when you say we shall be saved? Question, aren't we saved already? Yes, but salvation is contemplated from three aspects in the New Testament, past, present, and future. The day we came to Christ, the day God drew us to himself, we placed our faith and trust, we were saved from what? We were saved from the penalty of sin. Right now, until the day we die, we are being saved from the power of sin. And then the third aspect lies future, when we are going to be saved once and for all from the power, presence, and threat of God's wrath against us. Already we are saved, but not yet. They're already not the attention. We are really, truly bona fide saved right now, but the completion, the consummation of our salvation lies yet future at the return of Christ when we stand before him. Why should I let you into heaven? I have no other argument. I have no other plea. Christ Jesus died for me. That's the basis on which I'm in it. Enter thou into the kingdom of your Lord. And so notice the strength of Paul's divinely inspired logic. Christ's blood by which we are justified will save us from God's wrath. The only thing that can spare us from God's wrath, beloved, is not our sincerity, is not our good intention. If it were possible, as we often say, that from this day on to the, you live to a hundred, you never committed one act of sin, you and I would still go to hell. Because the very fact that we came into this world with a sin nature makes us already what? Condemned. John 3, 18, he who does not believe in him, who is not believing, is condemned already. The only thing by which we can be rescued from God's wrath is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in the merits of his shed blood on the cross, that blood that was spilled over 2,000 years ago, Paul says also, we were reconciled by the death of God's son, we'll be saved by his life. Do you see the logic? We're justified by his blood. We are going to be saved from his wrath. We have been reconciled by the death of his son. We are going to be saved by the life, that is, by the resurrection of his son. Thus, with God displaying such amazing love for us, we can be absolutely sure Paul is teaching in this text that God will see to our final salvation and participation in the coming glory of God. With this, Paul closes this section on a note of jubilation. Hear me with this note of triumph, this note of jubilation in verse 11. He says this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, not future, but we have now in this present time, because of faith and trust in him, we have received reconciliation. That's the greatest blessing the human heart can ever know. Reconciliation with God, peace with God, freely obtained through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him this day as your personal Lord and Savior? I say personal, I use the common expression personal because here's the truth, you must make it personal. Have you confessed your sins, truly believed on him, looking to him and him alone, not baptism, not church membership? Is your faith squarely anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone? If someone asks you, how do you know you are saved this morning? It is not because of how you feel. It is not because you have been baptized. It is not because you are a member of a church. It is because this one fact, you have placed faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and him alone to save you. Have you done that? I trust you will. By his grace, for Christ's sake. Amen.